0: Hey everybody, thanks for joining us at the Central and Janesville podcast. Please remember to check us out on centraljanesville.com throughout the week. We're excited for wherever God's got you at right now, and we hope this message brings you a little closer. Thanks. I want you to think back. If you're anybody who's maybe past high school age or so, uh, think back to uh, the group of people that you felt least comfortable with during your school age years. Who were they? What was it about this group of people that made you feel forever uneasy around them? And let me just pick out some of these groups from my childhood, hockey players. Uh, Let's just say basketball players didn't like hockey players. Hockey players didn't like basketball players. And I don't even know what it was, but it was an uneasy thing that we had going on between us in our high school. Uh, And then there's another uncomfortable situation that I think most people have felt. uh, Going to a high school football game and having to walk in front of that student section. It was always an awful thing. You felt like every eye was on you and they were thinking about you in every possible negative way that you felt insecure about yourself about. Uh, I had one girl who I coached uh, in basketball. She was a funny girl, but she, she was also really insecure at times. And she used to always say how uncomfortable that situation made her feel walking in front of the student section. And so then she's home for a weekend during her first year in college, and and she's at a boys basketball game, and she's walking up the bleachers to come and sit by me and another one of the former players, and she totally biffed it halfway up the risers. Absolutely hilarious. She was mortified, felt like every eye was on her, people were laughing at her, and the thing was, is we were. Uh, It's easy to feel uncomfortable when we feel like everybody's looking at us. Uh, Even more so when we think that they don't really like what they are seeing. Now I want you to think back uh, to the people that you felt most comfortable with being around during your high school years or your middle school years. What was it that made that group of people that made you feel comfortable to be around them? It was that group that you could trip on the risers in front of them and you knew it was going to be okay, right? It was that group that you could say something really stupid without the fear that they'd forever think that you were really stupid. If you love soccer, you felt most comfortable with people on the soccer team. If you, if you were a band geek, you felt right being with other band geeks. If you liked rules, you got along well with the hall monitors. Because They're the only ones who like rules. We find unity with people that we find things in common with. Let me put it real plainly for you. None of us have ever felt unity within a, gr- a community or a group of people when we didn't feel that there was an unconditional love that was being given to us. You've never felt a part of a group that you felt judged by in some way. And it's not that we think, man, this group has to think that I'm perfect. It's actually okay if they don't think that we're perfect. It's okay if they see the imperfections in us, our flaws, but if there's going to be a sense of unity, if we're gonna feel like we're connected and a part of that group of people, We can't feel like we're being judged by those people. And that was a beauty that I found when Crystal and I fell in love back in high school. I knew she didn't think I was perfect. And heck, I knew she saw my flaws more than anybody else did. But in spite of that, I knew that she believed in me more than anybody else did. I knew that she was gonna be in my corner more than anybody else was, without looking down on me for all that stuff. In that grace, while still seeing the truth for who I was, it gave me unity with her that I didn't have anywhere else, except for maybe from my mom. But you know, when it doesn't count when it comes from your mom, because you know your mom has to love you. Uh, there was something, though, in Jesus that made people not only want to be in his presence, they needed to be in his presence. What made him so desirable? What made people willing to walk for miles and miles in the dry summer heat with sandals that barely protected their feet just for the chance to see this man? What made them willing to go all day without food just for the chance to listen to him speak? It was because he gave to them this fusion of two things that everybody needs, but almost nobody knows how to put in a perfect balance. Those two things are grace and truth. And what we're doing right now is we're continuing in this unlimited series today, uh, talking about the core values of Central Christian Church and Today's core value is this. We seek to practice non-judgmental love at all times. If we're going to have unity in this wonderful community that exists here, there has to be a sacrificial, unconditional love that isn't just talked about. It has to be exhibited. It must be tangible. It must be felt. And that's the kind of love that Jesus was able to display through this perfect balance of grace and truth. Uh, Carrie Newhoff is a pastor uh, who has, I think, some really great ideas on uh, when it comes to grace and truth. And he discusses, I think, in real plain language about what judgmentalism, how it's incompatible with Christian values. And I don't know if judgmentalism is really a word, but it's a word we're going to use today. Uh, when you or I live in a place of judgment over others, unity is the first thing that often breaks down. Uh, and I love what he says about our need for balance in the Christian communities uh, to abide by both grace and truth. He says this, remove grace from the truth and you don't actually have truth at all, but a cold, steely imitation. This is the shadow side of conservatism. The opposite is also true, of course. Remove truth from grace and you don't have grace, but a spineless imitation. As you've already figured out, this is the shadow side of liberalism. Fusing grace and truth is an exceptionally difficult venture and is usually only successful when you spend significant amounts of time on your knees, and when the source of your attempt is actually Christ himself. All that comes from Kerry Newhoff. Uh, grace and truth, they have to go together. But how can they? You know, our truth is found in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that life isn't actually just a free-for-all. Now, one of the things that he tells people in the Gospels most often is, go and sin no more. Uh, Jesus literally died because sin is a real thing, and it's a real thing that all of us commit. And it's also a real thing that he wants to help us weed out of our lives. But when the church is all about the, the truth of telling people what they're doing wrong and not pointing them to the one who gives grace in spite of all that sin, we become a pretty cold and heartless and careless group of religious elites uh, we feel like we're, we're able to present ourselves as righteous and perfect without, almost without the need for Jesus. And then we feel like all these other people, they, they should live the same kind of right life that we do too. And, and if they're not doing that, that they've got it all wrong. Truth without Jesus becomes a Christianity that's void of Christ. And that is an awful, awful combination, uh, but on the other hand, the presence of only grace without anyone pointing to truth, it's really no better. It might, it might feel good to be welcomed in with open arms and everybody just thinks the best of you with no accountability, but shedding light on the truth in our hearts and on the grace that's only found in Jesus, it's necessary for living lives that are actually going to be transformed by Jesus. There has to be grace and truth. Uh, grace only is grace when it's understood that we're guilty of things that actually require grace Now put it this way you you might be wanting to learn how to be a better cook and so you start taking a a cooking class and you don't know the first thing about cooking you don't even know the difference between sugar and salt to you they look the same so they, they they're just the same and so as you begin cooking your first attempt at a banana bread instead of putting in sugar you use all salt and your teacher A teacher takes a taste of it. And because you're a beginner, the teacher just kind of winces a little bit and tries to put on a good face. There's plenty of grace there, right? You're just starting out. Grace is great. It's judgment-free. But where we've gone wrong, though, is this idea that it's grace to keep letting people use the salt in place of the sugar that's in the recipe. That's not grace. That's simply being non-confrontational. It's not kind to be non-confrontational all the time because kindness wants the best for people, even if it means bringing up something that might be hard to say or hard to hear. Grace is coupled with truth. Grace says, hey, it's okay that you did what you did, but there's a better way that will be better in the end for you and for everybody around you. It's Jesus who couples grace and truth together. One without the other leads either to judgmentalism or it leads to empty kindness. And Jesus was neither of those things. And his church is meant to be neither of those things. The church is meant to be full of grace and full of truth. And like Pastor Newhoff says, fusing the two together is an exceptionally difficult venture. But thanks be to God, like Paul would say, we have an example and our example, like in everything else, it's found in Jesus. In John 1, 17 and 18, it says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, it's a pretty short and simple passage that we read for today, okay? But it says so much. Jesus was all grace. He talked to a Samaritan woman at the well when no other Jewish person would talk to her. But Jesus was also all truth. While talking to this Samaritan woman at the well, he discussed her, her broken relationships, that she had been divorced five times and now she was living with a man who she wasn't even married to. Uh, but that wasn't the only truth that he shared with her. He told her about himself. He told her that, that he, Jesus, was the one who could actually give her this, this fully satisfying life once and for all. Jesus was all grace. He stopped the the angry crowd from stoning to death a woman who was caught in adultery. He said to her, I don't condemn you. But Jesus was also all truth. His parting words to this woman were, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus was all grace. He opened the door of God's kingdom to tax cheats and to liars. But he was also all truth. He condemned the religious leaders of his day for being liars and hypocrites. You know, this verse in John, it points to us that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. He was all grace, all truth, all the time. We haven't seen God, but Jesus himself, he makes the full grace and truth of God known to us. You see, we aren't meant to be half grace, half truth kind of people. You know, in this moment, I'm, I'm the grace-filled Kellen, and in this moment, I need to be the truth-filled Kellen. But it's like that, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like that sometimes. It's like I've got the, this own little game of good cop, bad cop that's going on inside of my own little head. Uh, at, at certain moments, when my kids mess up, it's like, man, I'm gonna show them right now. They're, they're gonna wish that they had never done that ever again. And then at other times, it's like, man, this child needs this child just needs a hug. Yeah, she just murdered her pet, but man, if I come down too hard on her right now, it's just gonna be all over. Just like Jesus isn't half man, half God, he also isn't half grace, half truth. He is 100% God, 100% man, and he's also 100% grace and 100% truth. We can't get this 200% grace and truth in our heads about as much as we can't figure out the 200% of God being fully God and fully man. Like, it doesn't make sense to us. How does grace and truth work together like this? How do we practice all truth and all grace at the same time? Truth is, it's not that easy, but it comes down simply to to keeping judgment out of the equation. I don't get on my high seat to judge others as as either a saint or a sinner. What you are is what I am, a person in need of Jesus, both his grace and his truth. And anything other than 100% of both of those things will simply not be the full Jesus. So let me take a few minutes to go over uh, five Christian virtues that judgmentalism is incompatible with that that Pastor Neuhoff actually talked about in an article that I I read. Um, What we're going to find is that all of these virtues, they require both truth and grace if they're going to be lived out the way that Jesus lived them out. And so here's the first virtue that I think is it's incompatible with judgmentalism. The first one is this love is incompatible with judgmentalism have you ever noticed that when you find the presence of judgment in somebody's heart it's almost always guarantees that you're going to find an absence of love Uh, when i'm guilty of judging someone i don't have any kindness in my heart for them at that moment judgment of a person is so much different than judgment of an action Uh, more often than not we go right to judging the person not the action we define that person by their action rather than defining the action and then seeing that person through the light of grace. Uh, I'm going to give an example, something that happened actually this this week on a morning where I was writing this sermon. I came to a four-way stop sign on Ruger Drive. And I put my blinker on to go left and the person right in front of me, uh, they arrived there first and so that uh, the, the person on my left though, I think we arrived at almost the exact same time. I'm not Not 100% sure if she stopped first or if I did, but I know it was really close, and so I let the person in front of me go through like I was supposed to, and then because I wasn't fully sure if I had stopped first or that other person on my left had stopped first, I waited a split second before going, and it didn't look like she was going to go, and so I started to nudge forward, and at the same time, she starts to nudge her car forward. And she gets visibly angry at me and she starts like waving at me doing all this kind of stuff and she's like waving her hand and it looked like though she was waving me to go and so i started to go again and at the exact same time that she started to nudge forward so now she gets even more mad and i just yielded i stopped my car i let the angry woman go through but now i was also mad And here's what happened. I was muttering names under my breath at her. Uh, My first reaction wasn't to judge her seemingly incorrect adherence to the rules of a four-way stop sign. My first reaction was to call her a name. My first reaction was to vilify her. That my friends is what judgment looks like. Judgment is an absence of love for the person that you think has been in the wrong. Judgment goes beyond a mere recognition of a wrong that was done, and it sees the person who did it as bad. And it wasn't until after I'd actually vilified her in my mind that I started to kind of go over the situation and think about whether or not what she did was wrong or what I did was wrong. And as I calmed down, I started to realize that she wasn't a bad person just because of this situation. If she was, then we're all bad, right? Uh, I had to take a moment to separate the action from the identity of, of who she was as a person. People make mistakes sometimes. Uh, and sometimes they even make mistakes that you or I might need to actually step up and correct. But when thinking about those mistakes in that are in need of correction, you're going to go a long ways towards lacking judgment if you keep in mind that your own mistakes and your, your own depth of your sin are also huge. Uh, learn to deal with those issues before you you look at somebody else's issues. Jesus talks about it. He says, take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the dust in someone else's eye. Here's something powerful that I think happens when we do this process of dealing with our own sin first. You'll encounter a loving God who forgives you despite your rather egregious sin. And then having been loved, having experienced love, you're gonna, you're gonna have love for others. You can love others then. We learn to love when we see how much we've been loved by God. And Jesus says this in John three seventeen. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because of our sin. He didn't consider us a lost cause. He kept free of that judgment that we sometimes have. Because, because he did keep free of that judgment, he was able to love us enough to die on a cross for us. He couldn't have loved us that way if he had this judging spirit about us. Remember that if you're judging someone, it's gonna be virtually impossible to be loving them at the same time. And so that's, that's maybe the biggest of the Christian virtues, love. Um, probably the one that's most incompatible with this attitude of judgment, but there's other ones. Uh, the second one I wanna talk about is this. Helping others is incompatible with judgmentalism. Do you ever notice that people who judge almost never help and people who help almost never judge? Uh, Think about that for a minute because for me, that rings so true in my experience of people. And if judgy people do help, they probably do it in a much, well, with much less joy and grace in their hearts. Uh, Maybe they do it out of a feeling of obligation or to follow the rules that they think makes them a better person than other people. But helping... uh, The helping doesn't come freely to someone who's judgmental. Judgment is like drawing this line in the sand that usually you're on the good side of the line and all the other people are on this other side of the line. And this causes a division that it's hard to break through when it comes to actually helping somebody else who's on that other side of the line. Looking back at Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about removing the plank out of your eye, I want you to listen to why he says he wants us to do that. Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. When I take a look at my own issues first, the whole purpose is so that I can then help other people. I'll be able to see clearly enough to actually help you, not so that I can judge you uh, for things that you're still working through, but I can help you. If you're really trying to help somebody for the sake of helping them, there's a real good chance that. you're no longer going to be judging people. All right, so that's the second thing. The third thing that's incompatible with judgmentalism is humility. Judgment is never grounded in humility. You're never going to hear somebody with a judgy attitude say, man, I'm just as messed up as you are. How can I help you? That's just not the way it works. Judgment carries this air of condescension. It's grounded in arrogance. Judgy people say things like, I can't believe that you would ever do that. Uh, What a pathetic thing that you would do. What a pathetic way to behave. But let me be more fair on that point. I shouldn't say that judgy people say those things. The truth is that we all go through moments of humbleness and we all go through moments of pridefulness. There are many times when I look at people and I see them with grace because I see my own failures in their failures. And then there are many times where I look at people and I see them with disdain because I don't think I could ever stoop to their depths. We've all been judgy people sometimes. Uh, again, what, what we're seeing is that issue of superiority, of drawing a line in the sand. Uh, some of us have done that this week with those on the other side of the political aisle from us. As if I think that my political side has every right idea. What a joke, right? Are you humble enough to realize that not all of your political ideas are probably right in every situation? Because I'm telling you, they're probably not. It's important to realize that very few people get judged into life change. In fact, I'm pretty sure it doesn't ever happen because even if that change happens because you're judging somebody, it's usually not a a heart change that's occurred. It's usually... Rule following that started to take over and the rule followers without grace as their driving force become entrenched in judgmentalism themselves. And now you've started this vicious cycle of prideful people demanding others act a certain way, drawing lines in the sand that produce further division and less unity. Humility though, helps you to find empathy with people. It says, I get where you're at. I get where you're coming from. I'm not much different than you. I mess up too. Maybe we can help each other. That kind of humility goes a long ways towards helping to love people into life change in a way that judgment can never achieve. People flock to that kind of person. Jesus is that kind of humble person. The fourth thing that I think judgmentalism is incompatible with is prayer. Uh, And this doesn't mean that judgmental people don't pray. Jesus actually talked about this one Pharisee who prayed, Lord, thank you that I'm not like all these other sinners over there. Judgmental people probably do pray, but they might not be able to truly pray for somebody else's good. Praying for the eternal benefit of someone else requires the distinct recognition that Jesus died for that person and wants to have a relationship with that person. Now, I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. I think right now, my biggest enemy in in life is someone for whom now I actually have a deep God-birthed love because I began to pray for him. I hated this guy so much until I started to realize through prayer just how much Jesus had a a desire to grab a hold of this guy's heart. And once that understanding started to take place, it's amazing how all of that past judgment that I had went away and how God filled that space in my heart with a desire to see God do miracles in this guy's life. There's a connection between judgment and prayer. When you pray for someone... That, in and of itself, is a humbling of your own thoughts about that person. It's the act of putting God's hopes for that person above your own dissatisfaction with that person. It's a desire that begins welling up in you to see God help that person in whatever way he wants to. And it all gives birth to a love that wasn't there on your own. God can give birth to a love in you that did not exist on your own doing. And prayer does more for your heart, I think, it does more for your heart of judgment towards somebody else than I think it will ever probably do for that person. Prayer uh, prayer is incompatible with judgmentalism. But there's a fifth thing, a fifth Christian virtue that's incompatible with judgmentalism. Evangelism is incompatible with judgmentalism. If we want to kill evangelism at our church, all we need to do is be a, a church that's filled with judgmental Christians. You think about that. Who do you run from most in your life? People who don't approve of you? People who find faults and confuse your faults into being your identity as a person? We all run from people who judge us. Jesus has called us, though, to make disciples, to go out in the world to make disciples. How can we do that if our judgment of people makes them run from us? We're called to be people that are not only united together in community, but also people who are helping to facilitate others becoming united to Jesus. That cannot happen unless the grace and truth that are coupled perfectly together in the person of Jesus are also being coupled together in our attitudes towards the imperfect people in our lives. Jesus didn't come simply to give us an example of grace and truth, he came to save us in grace and truth. Only Jesus can save all of us hard-hearted, hard-headed people who are more than deserving of judgment. And he did save us, and he saved us in part so that we can begin to look more like Jesus to the people in our lives, so that we can love people without the judgment that Jesus doesn't judge us with. Uh, We need truth. We need grace. We need Jesus. How are you coupling truth and grace together to live in loving unity with the people in your life? Do you lean too heavy on truth and not enough on grace? Or do you lean too heavy on grace with not enough truth in your life? Jesus is the only place where we can learn the full measure of both grace and truth. Where do you need to let Jesus fill your heart with more of his heart today? Why don't you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much That you aren't partly gracious to us and partly full of truth. You are full grace and full truth. That even in the, the truth of my incredible egregious sin, you are still fully gracious towards me. That you give me your full grace, your forgiveness. God, it is so difficult for me to couple those two ideas together. Sometimes I'm just too soft because I don't want to say a hard truth, but sometimes I'm just a jerk because I can't give grace to people in the way I should. God, give give us understanding and wisdom today, how to couple grace and truth in our lives and in relationship with the people in our lives. Forgive us where we've messed up at times. And God, I pray that throughout this week, we would understand your goodness a little bit more. We thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Central and Janesville podcast. Remember to check us out at centraljanesville.com. Have a great week.